Well, good morning. It is good to be here with you all. My name is Jonathan. Uh, if you don't know me, my, uh, I am the campus pastor here, and uh, I, I'm excited to be here. Uh, we are continuing on in, in a sermon series that we began last week. Uh, last week, we began this sermon series called The Book of Eli, looking at the life of the prophet Elijah. And, and I, I'll be honest, I have been really looking forward to this sermon series. I've been looking forward to it for a little while. It's been uh, in the works, and uh, I, I've been just kind of chomping at the bit to get here, uh, simply because Elijah is full of just so many incredible stories. I mean, we just, we just heard uh, a fairly incredible story in its own right, and, and there's a, a whole bunch more that we're going to work through in this series. But really, what Elijah is doing here is he's getting us ready for the coming of Jesus, right? Uh, he, he is, it is preparation for the main event, right? If you go to a concert, oftentimes uh, before a concert, there will be the warm-up act, right? If you go and see a band, there's going to be a warm-up act, the, the band that plays before the band you actually came to see, right? And, and usually what happens is the warm-up bands, their whole job is really just to get the crowd going, right? To get them excited, get them motivated, get them into the, the, the whole concert experience so that by the time that the main band gets there, everyone's ready, everyone's excited, and we're all ready to go and we're having a good time. Right? Rarely, if ever, and I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but rarely, if ever, does the warm-up band do something completely different than, than the main act. Right? If, you, if you went to a concert and you were going to go see, I, I'm just picking, U2, all right? you're going to a U2 concert, the opening act is not a Shakespeare play, right? Like, that, that would be the weirdest opening act anyone. I mean, you can tell me if that has ever happened, but like... The opening act has to get you ready for what's going to come. A good opening act is getting everyone prepared and, and into what is going to happen. In fact, it's the exact same thing with Elijah. Elijah is getting us ready for the coming of Jesus. And, and I mean, we, we've, just, we've just heard our passage, so I won't beat around the bush in terms of what he's going to do. Elijah raises a boy, a dead boy, back to life. I mean, if that doesn't get us ready for what Jesus is going to do, I don't know what else will, right? Elijah is showing us, well, what is Jesus going to do? What is this going to look like? The main event, here it is. And so we're going to be spending, you know, uh, over the summer months looking at Elijah, this, this preparation for Jesus, because he's going to be showing us oftentimes what Jesus is ultimately all about. And, and this passage is, is really no exception at all. And so last week we began this series, we began by looking at, at two men, Ahab and Elijah. Ahab is the king, he's the king of Israel, he is a, a wicked, awful king, right? He leads the whole nation to, to worship idols and, and to follow uh, not what God is calling them to do. And out of nowhere, Elijah kind of just shows up on the scene, and the first thing we see of him is him approaching King Ahab and saying, God sent me here to tell you there will be no rain until I say so. And if you remember what happened last week is that Elijah came in, he kind of dropped this bomb on them, and then he took off, right? Elijah just immediately left, right? God told him, now I need you to go hide, all right? Everyone's going to be mad because of what you just said, so go hide. And so Elijah runs off into the wilderness, and God is, is feeding him there, right? Sends ravens to bring bread and meat. He can drink by this creek, and so God is providing, but, but God's word comes true. There is no rain on the land. And so eventually this creek that Elijah's beside runs dry. And so Elijah has to move on. And that's, that's really where we're picking up here this morning. 
Now, we've heard our passage read already, but if you do have a Bible, let me invite you to open to 1 Kings chapter 17. It's where we're going to be working through this morning. 1 Kings chapter 17, starting in verse 8. And really, what we're going to do is look at these two stories of what happens with Elijah and this widow, right? Two, Two encounters of what God is doing to get us ready for the coming of Jesus, And what we're going to see is that God is going to be proving himself to be the God of all of life, right? God is is over all of life. And so what we are called to do is then to trust in his provision, to persevere on in prayer. And ultimately, the, the call is to believe in the resurrection, so that's where we're going to go as we work through this passage. But let's start just at the beginning. Verse Verse 8. We're called to trust in God's provision. It says, then the word of the Lord came to him, that is to Elijah, and he says, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. You have to understand just how how incredible this command already was going to be for Elijah. Not not only, uh, well, starting with the fact that Zarephath would be somewhere around 100 miles away. All right, Elijah, get up, walk a hundred miles that way in the middle of a drought and, and go over to Zarephath. And what we're told about Zarephath is that it is in Sidon. All right, we're leaving Israel. Right? Elijah is told to go leave Israel, leave the promised land, and I want you to go over into Sidon. Now, the last time we've heard about Sidon was actually last week. That, that's where Ahab went, King Ahab, as he desired to go and worship all of these idols of the surrounding nations. Where did he go? He went to Sidon so that he could get a, a queen from there so that he could worship this god, Baal. And God is saying, now I'm going to go send you into Sidon, Elijah. But here's the difference. Ahab went over into Sidon in order to worship their gods, in order to take on everything that they were doing. He wanted to be more like them. God is sending Elijah over into Sidon in order to take the good news of the God of Israel with him. See, in fact, Jesus actually picks up this theme in his own ministry. People start wondering, why do you say that the gospel is going to go beyond the Jewish nation? Shouldn't it just be for for Israel? Why the whole world? And so Jesus actually quotes of of this exact thing. Luke chapter 4, he says, But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. See, Jesus is making the point that Elijah is actually sent outside of Israel. Why? Because even in the Old Testament, God's purpose and plan was always that the good news of Jesus would be spread through the entire world. In fact, that's exactly what Elijah is going to do. He's going to show and he's going to bring the knowledge of the God of Israel with him. And so God continues in verse 9. He says, behold, when you get there to Zarephath, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Again, this is a pretty shocking statement for God to make. Right? God is saying, all right, I'm going to send you off into this foreign land, but don't worry, there's a widow there who will be taking care of you. Now, just so that we're familiar, right, you have to remember at this time, widows don't exactly have a lot of options for themselves. It's not like they could go out, get jobs, or have, you know, social assistance or welfare, nothing. No, no, this is a woman who is destitute on her own, and God says, I'm going to go send you to her, and she is going to take care of you. 
right? To put it in kind of our, our modern ears, this is kind of like God saying, all right, I want you to go to North Korea, and there's, don't worry, a homeless man there is going to take care of you. And you're thinking, ah, oh, God, it, it, is there anyone else? Is there anyone else who could be taking care of me? But the whole point here is that actually it's, it's God who's going to take care of him. God is the one who's going to be at work. God is the one who is going to provide for Elijah. And Elijah is being called to actually now take a step in faith. He actually has to go out and, and trust that God is going to hold up his promise. Right? He has to trust God. And by that, I, I don't simply mean trust in the sort of like mental assent. Right? I, I trust that it's going to happen. Right? Picture uh, if you have someone who's coming into your house uh, to do some work, right? You got a contractor, they're coming in, and they're going to build a brand new flight of stairs up to your second level, okay? You can say to the contractor, look, I trust you. I trust you're going to do a good job, but that trust is only ever put into practice when you stand on that stairs, right? When you actually take a step and trust that your weight is not going to collapse under their work. It's the exact same thing that Elijah is needing to do here. He has to take a step out in faith and trust that if I walk this hundred miles in the desert in the, or in, the, in a drought, God is going to provide. And so, I mean, you get verse 10 and it just actually sounds far more shocking. Verse 10 simply says, he arose and went to Zarephath. Right? It's such a simple little statement, but it says so much about how Elijah actually trusts God. He got up and he walked a hundred miles because God said so, and Elijah is trusting that God's word will come true. And so the story kind of zooms forward to Elijah actually arriving there. He says when he, he gets there, he goes to the city gates. That's sort of the main center of the city. He goes to the city gates and he sees a widow who's there. She's collecting sticks. And so he walks up to her and he says, all right, could you get me some water? Right? He's acting exactly the way God has told him to act. So here's the widow God has provided. All right, can you please get me some water? And just as she's starting to go, he calls and he goes, oh, actually, could you also bring me just, just a little bit of bread? Just a little bit. It's a morsel. It's not a lot. He's not asking for a loaf. It's just, just a little bit of bread. And here's where you, you all of a sudden start to see the cracks form. Right? Verse 12, she responds. She said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. This woman is not just destitute. She doesn't just have a lot of options. She's got nothing. She has absolutely nothing. The, the small request that Elijah makes, hey, could, could you give me just a little bit of bread? She goes, I don't even have that. I've got nothing to my name. In fact, the only thing I'm doing out here is grabbing sticks. By the way, it's sticks, not logs, not blocks of wood. She's gathering just tiny little sticks so she can go make a fire, prepare her last meal and then she's going to die. She goes, I, I have nothing. I can't entertain a guest at this point. I can't even support myself and my son. She is as desperate as desperate gets. And yet all throughout the Bible, we see God again and again taking care of those who are helpless. He is the God of, of widows and orphans, and here is no exception. God is going to take care of this woman. And so in verse 13, Elijah said to her, do not fear. 
I mean, that is an incredible statement that Elijah says to this woman. She has literally just told him, I'm about to eat my last meal and I'm going to die. And Elijah responds with, but don't be afraid. Don't worry about it. I mean, isn't this the time to worry? She's got nothing left. Certainly this is the time to be afraid. And yet every time we read that statement in the Bible, every time God says, do not fear or do not be afraid, it's always followed up with a promise of God. It's followed up by a promise of God that he is greater than our fear. He is greater than whatever we are afraid of. And here is what God promises. Verse 13, Elijah speaking, says, do not fear. Go and do as you have said not, not the dying part, just the making food part. But first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterwards, make something for yourself and for your son. At first, it sounds like, uh, Elijah, that, that sounds like you're taking advantage of this woman, right? Don't do that. And he probably would be, except, verse 14, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent. The jug of oil shall not be empty until the day the Lord sends rain upon the earth. The call not to fear comes with a promise. God says, I am going to take care of you. In fact, the flour, the oil that you have, they will not run out. For all the rest of the years that this drought is going to continue, you will not run out of any of it. But she's asked to do something in the middle of this. She's asked to actually take a step of faith. You have to put yourself again in her shoes for just a moment. She is desperate. She is hungry. Her stomach is already hurting her because she has not eaten anything. And now she has in her hands her last little meal that she can possibly put together. And she is being asked, all right, now, now please give that to Elijah, trusting that God is going to provide more. Right? I mean, that, that is a massive step of faith that she is being called to take here in this moment. For, for a, a, a foreign woman who has not grown up in the land of Israel and hearing all the promises of God, now she has to take everything that she has left, all that she has in her hands and say, all right, but I trust God is going to yet provide. And here's verse 15. And she went and did as Elijah said. She actually trusted that God's word was true with her last possession. And she and he and her household ate for many days. She listened to the voice of God and God provided for her. Right? He uses the, the prophet Elijah to multiply her food so that she would not starve, so that she would not go hungry, but that she would have enough. Many ways, I mean, this is exactly what Jesus is going to do. We said Elijah is getting us ready for the coming of Jesus. Jesus does the same thing, but he doesn't do it for one person. He does it for thousands of people all at once, right? If you remember, Jesus takes loaves and fish and everyone says, look, that's enough for maybe one person. And Jesus says, it's all right, there's enough. And he multiplies this food for thousands and thousands of people all together. See, Elijah's getting us ready for what Jesus is going to do. But here, we need to see that the point is really the same in, in both of those cases. It's the fact that God is the one who provides and gives to us everything that we have. 
God is the one behind what we have, and we don't have anything that God himself has not provided. And you might say, well, hold on. I mean, I, look, I, I work hard. I, I, I do my job. I save up. I make good decisions. I mean, I've earned what I have. But, but let me ask you this question. When's the last time you got food poisoning? Right? Do you remember what that was like? Right? Or just, or just been really ill? Okay? This, this last week, I actually had food poisoning. If you're wondering where this analogy is coming from, I had food poisoning. And for about two days, I was absolutely useless. I, I was po- like helpless to do anything at that point. And, and here's the point. We are incredibly fragile people. We are fragile beings, and all it takes is one small push on our health, and we aren't able to stand up. We assume we can do all these things in our own strength and our own power, and yet all it takes is a little flu, a little cold, a little food poisoning, and we're laid out flat. Everything that we have is ultimately from God's hands. When we are relying on God's provision, whether we know it or not, the question is, are we thankful to him for it, and do we trust him with it? Do you trust God is actually able to take care of you? Do you trust that he will take care of you? See, God actually does give us promises that he is watching out for us, right? We, we don't have this promise in, in Elijah, right? God has not promised to multiply all of our food for, forever. No, that, that's not, that promise is not for us. But here is one that God does give to us. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Do not be afraid. If God can take care of the sparrows who are flitting around in the air, he can take care of you. We can trust God is able to provide for us. Now, it doesn't mean that we sit in our basement and we say, all right, God, you're going you're gonna to provide, so I'm just going to wait until you bring food here or you multiply the food in my pantry. No, no, that's not how it works. It's not what God is saying. No, we are to, go, to get up, go outside, go get a job, work hard, all of those things, but all of those things that you're doing are from God's hand, right? To have a job that, that can actually provide and support your family is an amazing blessing. To, to even be one that you maybe even like to do is even better. All of those are gifts from God. Trusting in God's provision doesn't mean we do nothing. On the contrary, we work hard. Why? Because we're stepping out, trusting that God's promises are sure and we can actually stand on them. We are called to trust in God's provision. And here's where you'd almost expect this story now to end with a, and they lived happily ever after, right? God, God met their needs. They needed food. God gave them food. All right, sounds great. This is, this is the end of the story. It's a wonderful thing. But, but God actually has more that he wants to show us in the life of this woman. Not only can we trust in his provision, but we are called to persevere in prayer. Verse 17, we read, And after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe, there was no breath left in him. 
See, God had provided a way for this woman and her son to escape death by starvation. And so it would have been an incredible shock at this point then to see her son now die of an illness. I mean, you can understand how she is feeling at this moment. She, she's, she is angry. She's angry with, with Elijah. She's blaming him for what happened and, and the God that he is serving. Verse 18, she says, she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You've come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? Right? She blames Elijah. You've done this. The God you serve has done this. She says, look, it must be because there's some kind of sin in my life that he has taken from me. Now, we're not exactly sure what she is going to mean by, by sin, right? She doesn't grow up in Israel, so, but nonetheless, she's been living with Elijah for at least some amount of time. And so Elijah's probably begun to tell her about the God of Israel. And, and ultimately, this great problem that we have, that sin has separated us from God. And so she's started to make some connections between, between sickness and death and sin and, and, and God's work, but she doesn't have her theology quite right, right? She assumes God is vindictive, trying to make her pay for her sin when, she, when she's not ready for it, right? Here, I provided you food, but you're not perfect, so now, boom, I'm going to kill your son, right? She's starting to think like that. And as much as we say, yeah, that, that's not right, like she doesn't have everything worked out, I mean, as soon as we start going through tragedy, as soon as we start actually going through suffering, it's amazing how often our minds do the exact same thing. Man, God must be mad at me. God must not care about me. God must have left me. Maybe he's not even real. Our minds start going through all sorts of crazy things as soon as we start going through suffering. And, and here is what we need to realize. The Bible doesn't let us stay there. The Bible doesn't let us stay there. In fact, the Bible begins to show us why these things happen. If you remember the story of Jesus walking with his disciples, they come across a man who was born blind. And so his disciples ask Jesus, well, well Jesus, who sinned here? Was, was it this guy? Did he sin? Or was it his parents' sin that he was born blind? Essentially, what they're asking is, hey, uh, Jesus, who's God mad at here? Is God mad at that guy or is God mad at his parents? And Jesus says, no, like, you don't understand. John chapter 9, he says, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. See, Jesus is trying to be clear here. God is not vindictive. He's not petty. Did his parents ever sin? Yeah. Did he ever sin? Yes. Is that the reason for it? No. God doesn't allow bad things to happen to us in order to get back at us for something. Actually, God has a plan even for the darkest moments in our lives, and he's going to use these times ultimately for his glory to be displayed, and that's exactly what's going to happen here in Elijah. She cries out to Elijah, and Elijah does something here that I think is very wise. He doesn't, he doesn't launch into a lecture on, on who God is and the theological connections between sin and, and, you know, trying to deal with all of her false conceptions about theology. No, no, no. He doesn't do any of that. He simply enters into her pain. He says, give me your son. Picks him up in his arms, brings him up, puts him on his own bed, and he begins to cry out to the Lord. In verse 20, he says, oh, Lord, my God. 
Have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Right? He prays here almost exactly the words that she was asking. Right? Elijah here is interceding before God on her behalf, taking her words and bringing them to God. Now hear me, Elijah knows God well enough at this point. He knows God is not trying to get after. He's not looking for people to punish. He is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. But he also knows God is the one who is in control. He doesn't throw his hands up and say, look, it's bad luck that happened. Or, you know, these things, that's just the way of the world. You know, there's nothing you can do about it. No, he recognizes God is the one who is in control. And so he goes to God himself. Verse 21, he says, he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord. He continues this, this prayer over and over and over again. It wasn't just sort of one quick little prayer that Elijah gives. No, he is, he is in one sense, languishing in this prayer. But jump ahead just to verse 22 for a moment. Because verse 22 is shocking in one sense. It says, And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. God listened to Elijah. In fact, it, it, it almost says there he obeyed Elijah. He, he did exactly what Elijah asked. And that seems like a bit of a shocking statement for us. Why is God listening to Elijah? I mean, isn't the whole idea that it's the other way around, right? God says something, we listen, and, then, and, and that's the way it goes? But actually, I think this is meant to somewhat challenge some of our assumptions about what prayer looks like before God. Because all throughout the Bible, God is listening to his people. If you remember back to, to Abraham negotiating over Sodom and Gomorrah, God is listening to Abraham. Or you think about Moses interceding for the people when they build idols in the desert. God is listening to Moses. Or, or think of Cornelius in the New Testament. God sends an angel to talk to him and said, God is listening to your prayers. God actually does listen to us when we pray. And I think some of, that, some of the times that's shocking for us because we kind of assume that God is sort of this overlord cosmic robot. Sure, we can talk to him. But God's just going to do what he wants to do, right? God's just going to do his own thing. He doesn't actually care about what we're saying. He's just got his plan, and he's not interested in what we are saying at all. That's not who God is. Actually, God listens to the prayers of his people. He wants to hear from us. He wants to know us. It's not just that, that God is going to say something and we obey. Yes, we are called to do that, by the way. But God wants to hear from us. He wants to hear our prayers and, in fact, encourages us to continue to keep on praying, to persevere in that. In fact, Jesus tells his disciples a, a parable with essentially that exact same point. He says, look, even if you go to someone who doesn't want to listen to you at all, right, someone who hates you, and you keep on going, eventually you'll get their attention and they will listen to you. He says, how much more with your heavenly Father who loves you? If you continue on in this, Paul writes in Philippians, he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgivings, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says, bring 
everything to God. Everything you are stressed or anxious about, bring those to God. Why? Because he is listening to you. Because he cares about you. Because he wants to hear from us. And secondly, Paul says, because he gives us peace. Are you stressed? Keep praying. Are you anxious? Keep praying. God has promised you peace, so keep on praying. God listens to our prayers, and he answers when we call. So the invitation is to continue on, persevere in prayer, because God is listening to us. The God who provides all that we have, who gives us all that we need, is the one who is listening when we speak to him. Persevere in our prayers. God hears us and he answers them. Now, Elijah here is going to pray for something incredible. In verse 21, he says, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. Now, now let's just notice here for just a moment. That is the first time in the entire Bible that prayer has ever been uttered. No one had ever prayed for that before in the Bible up until Elijah uttered those words. So if you're asking, you know, how did he come up with that? Why did he even ask that? My answer is, I don't know. Outside of the Holy Spirit must have prompted Elijah to pray this prayer. That God would actually raise this child to life. But here is our last point. We're invited to believe in the resurrection. Elijah is distraught over what has happened to this woman. He's entered into her pain, the the suffering she's going through, and so she prays that God would return his breath to him. Now, Now here, there's a bit of a play on words that's happening all throughout this passage. In verse 17, we're told that his breath leaves him. In verse 21, Elijah is actually praying that his breath would come back to him. And then in verse 22, we're told, the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life, the breath of the child came into him again and he revived. See, in Genesis, when when God creates Adam and Eve, he breathes life into them. And when sin comes into the world and the curse of death comes with it, it is that breath that is being taken away. But the point here in this passage is that that is not the final word. That actually God is still in control. He is the one who can still give breath to his people. Even death does not stop the purposes of God. Sin and death have no stopping power for what God is going to do. He's not only capable of providing food for them, but he is the one who provides life itself. He is the God of life, not just sort of one aspect of it, but in fact, all of life is God's. All of life is given by him. And so God raises this boy back to life. Elijah takes him in his arms and brings him back to his mother, And she says, now I know you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. She recognizes, all right, everything that Elijah has said to me about who God is, is true, absolutely. 
right? The purpose that God had in allowing her son to die was to raise him so that she would understand that everything that he has promised is true, that his promises are sure. Even death itself does not get in his way. And see, I said Jesus, or I said Elijah's getting us ready for Jesus, and here is exactly what he's doing. He's getting us ready for what Jesus is going to do. Because Jesus is not only going to raise people himself. In fact, Jesus raises a few people from the dead throughout his life and ministry. But all of that is just a precursor. All of that is just a foreshadowing to the main event, and that is the resurrection of Jesus himself. See, here's the point. It's not just that God can raise someone to life. It's not just a cool party trick that God is able to do. Yeah, I can, I can create life. That's, that's not the point that he's getting at. That's not the point of the resurrection of Jesus. It's that in Jesus, God is dealing with sin and death forever. In John chapter 11, Jesus says this. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? See, the point Jesus is making is not just, hey, I, I can do this. I can raise someone to life. But that sin and death itself are going to be defeated. When Jesus died on the cross, he did so to pay for our sins. The penalty that we owed before God would be taken on him. The, the sting of death would be dealt with, gone forever, so that anyone who would trust in him, their sins would be forgiven. And he rose to life to show us that the curse of sin was ended forever. In fact, that our sins are paid for in full and death no longer has any hold on us. Jesus was raised to new life because he is the resurrection and the life. The whole story has been pointing forward to what Jesus would do. And so we have the same question in front of us. It's the same question Jesus asked. Do we believe it? See, we, we've been spending a while looking at Elijah, but we've been talking about Jesus. We're talking about what Jesus is able to do in our lives. He is the one who sustains all of the world, all of the universe. He is the one who upholds everything by the word of his power. It is in Jesus' name that we pray to the Father, and he is the reason that God would listen to our prayers. Jesus is the one who raises us to new life. And so the question is, do we believe it? Do we believe that Jesus rose from the grave? Are we willing to take a step out in faith and actually place our trust in him? to trust in what God is able to provide for us, to continue on in prayer, knowing that ultimately Jesus has dealt with our sins fully and completely, that death and sin are gone. See, the invitation is open to everyone to trust in what Jesus has done for us, in the sure promise that he gives, and that for everyone who does, we are given eternal life with him. Do you believe that? 
That's what the church is built on. It is built on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's why we gather. That's why we meet. That's why we celebrate each and every Sunday here. It's because we have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Do you believe it? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so incredibly grateful, Lord, for, for, the, for the work of Elijah, for his, for his life, the way that he has led and, and shown us what you are doing in Jesus Christ. But ultimately, Lord, it is because of Jesus that we are here. It is because of what Jesus has done on the cross. It is because of his death and his resurrection that has paid for our sins that we have the hope in eternal life. Oh, Father, I pray, would you be working in our hearts even now that we would believe in Jesus, that we would trust in what he has done, Lord, that we would not trust in what we are able to do, in what we can provide, but we would ultimately trust in who you are, in the provision you have given to us in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray, would our hope, would our trust be centered there? that we would trust in Jesus Christ with all that we have and we would give you all the glory for what you have done. We ask these things in your name. Amen.